And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, July 13th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, we're all about supply chains today, how the Defense Department can improve surge capacity in the supply chain, plus how government civilian agencies can better prepare for supply chain disruptions. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the General Services Administration is months away from releasing the final solicitation for its much-anticipated Alliant 3 government-wide acquisition contract. But a group of mid-sized firms are already raising the red flags because they feel the draft version is tilted towards very small or very large contractors. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller spoke with Doug Sickler, the chief growth officer for Pyramid Systems, Greg Gershman, CEO and co-founder of Ad Hoc, and Kevin Cooley, CEO of Resource Management Concepts. They're leading a coalition of medium-sized firms highlighting these issues, and they've got recommendations for improving Alliant 3. A lot of these IDIQs, the self-scoring IDIQs that are out there that favor really either if you're a small business category or if you're a very large business, Alliant is really unique in that it is a kind of a dom- market dominant vehicle, right? If you are not an Alliant Prime in one of the categories, you are excluded from a lot of the market, including your existing customers that are encouraged to roll over to uh, best-in-class vehicles that now that you don't hold. So even your work is is at risk. And so we felt like we needed to, to have a voice in this. Uh, we did research, wanted to have a fact based discussion really regarding some of the key requirements that would exclude, you know, companies like ours and, and others in our, our situation from scoring well enough to be one of the 60 companies to receive this uh, contract vehicle. And, uh, you know, those are things like the past performance, the size of the past performance, which is really incongruent with, you know, the average size of the client task, things like the, uh, uh, you know, approved accounting systems, which require not only that you have the, the accounting system capable of being approved by DCMA, but that you have the contracts that require the audit because you can't just, you know, request an audit out of the blue and, and have that done. So there are a number of things that, that we found common uh, to one another. We, we really decided to get together and to uh, write this paper, uh, I think, is really summarizing the, the challenges we face and ways that those can be corrected. Doug, you bring up a couple of things and why you all feel like Alliant is such a major contract. We know it's been around for a while. We know the size of the amount of money has been spent on it, but there are, feels like dozens of IDIQs. And, and why is Alliant different, if you will, in your in your view? It's really different in that it's used across the, the entire government. I mean, as a best in class vehicle, you know, there's an ease of use and access, and there's almost an assumption on the, the government side that you have access to that vehicle to work with. So that and the fact that while there are other a lot of other GWACs, Benson themselves um, market directly to the the government, and they have the ability to really drive business to that vehicle, whether you've got say in it or not. So they might be able to convince your customer, right, your long term customer, that this is a a good and viable acquisition uh, vehicle for them. They might require the assistance for contracting, et cetera. And those things leave you out in the cold, even in your even in business that you're you're vying to uh, to retain as a as a strong performing incumbent. So, 
it's a little bit different in that they're more aggressive in the way that they pursue uh, the business in the government. Let's talk a little bit about the the suggestions, the recommendations you all are making to GSA for line three. And we can start with this idea of breaking down the pools differently than maybe we've seen before about how Alliant 3 could be broken down by size. I don't know, Doug or whomever want to jump in and maybe describe that recommendation? Sure, this is Doug. I'll I'll start. I mean, there's really the thought that Alliant is is essentially, you know, the proverbial building a church for Easter Sunday, right? Alliant, in its history, right, has been known for consolidating requirements and competing these very large opportunities, right? And that's what FedSim, I believe, believes that, you know, the purpose of the Alliant is. And so, therefore, they focus on the bigger companies, the things that can take on the very large, complex systems integrations. But the facts don't support that in reality, right? Most of the opportunities that are bid through Alliant are much smaller, right? Much, much smaller. And so, there's the thought that when you need the largest of the large, you, you can pass those past performance requirements down to the task order level so that you get the very large players that can handle the multi-billion dollar opportunities. But, you know, you can kind of set a, a step level based on size of past performance or size of revenue in, in the company and things as a threshold for bidding on one particular task and particular bids. So there's a way that they can have it both ways, we believe, and that's what we're advocating for. This is Greg. I'll just add on to that. We want to get back to how do we find the right partner? And I think one of the, probably the best measure of that is experience and, and you know, and what has, you know, what have companies done um, in the past? And, you know, a company that has done a similar project at a similar size and scale is more likely to be able to deliver on the same kind of thing, you know, going forward. And I think that's a lot of what we go through this contracting process as we're trying to understand is, you know, who has that experience that's most likely going to result in a good outcome. The other piece to this is the current thinking that GSA put up there about the size standards. And you all in the white paper lay it out really well saying, for instance, past performance is based on $275 million in past performance. The other piece is, the, as, as, as Doug mentioned earlier, you got to have a cost accounting system. Is that just not typical for a company in the 50 to $100 million range? Or it's just the major big ones all will have it because of what they do. But uh, for instance, ad hoc may not have it until you actually have a contract that you need it for. Where's the disconnect happening with GSA? Why are they asking for things that maybe aren't typical or don't exist among this group of other than small companies? This is Kevin. I, I can throw some answers out there. In my experience, you know, most everyone does have a, a cost accounting system, but there are some agencies that don't really require it. And those agencies like to keep things simple. They'll be like, hey, all my task orders are firm fixed price. If it's a firm fixed price task order, you don't need a cost accounting system. Um, I mean, there, there are different ways to make things work. So I can see where that comes from. But the whole idea going back to the $275 million past performance, I mean, most of our work is with the Navy. Most of our work is with the Naval Warfare Centers. One or two percent of task orders might be in the two hundred plus million dollar range. So even the large businesses that work with the Navy, the Naval Warfare Centers, very rarely get the opportunity to even bid on a two hundred and seventy five billion dollar service task order. There's just a whole lot less of them. So I mean, and when you think about winning Alliant, you basically got to max your points out all seven of those past performance references. So you just don't need one two hundred and seventy five million dollar contract. You need like six or seven of them. And like I said earlier, they're pretty darn rare in the big picture. So the idea that, you know, 
the mid-level companies are going to go out and clean up, you know, six or seven of those. It's ludicrous. It's just not going to happen. And this is Doug. And if you had multiple contracts at the $275 million level, you would not be a $50 million company. I mean, that's, it's just by definition, right? I would say that even Lido's would be hard pressed to come up with three or four past performances that were five times their annual revenue. And it's not asking for a handout. What we're just asking for is the opportunity to compete, right? We love competing against big guys because we, we think there are a lot of things we do better than what they do. We know we know what we do well and we know what we don't do well. And those are the places where we're going to go and we're going to compete with those guys. And there's nothing we like more than to take down the big guys, but, uh, you know, head on. But we just want the opportunity to do that. Doug, I was going to, I'm glad you brought that up because I think what this is get to is because p- folks may listen to this and be like, stop whining, just compete. Go ahead, compete. And what you're saying is, yeah, we'd love to compete as long as the playing field is level. And I think what GSA seems to be pointing toward is maybe a playing field that's not as level as it needs to be or should be. Right, you, right. You just can't, you have to be on the field before you can compete. And so Alliant is a playing field. And we're saying, let us on the playing field. And then I, I guess the, the, the big question is there, which I know you, you all may not want to touch upon yet, but I'll throw it out there. Obviously, if GSA continues down this path and you all continue to not, if they don't listen as well as you hope they do, is there a protest potential too? I mean, is this is this something that have you all talked to any attorneys yet or is it too early in the process? Yeah, Jacob and I, we haven't had any of those discussions, but I do think that's possible. I mean, there's, it was mentioned earlier, there's probably hundreds of companies that are highly interested in Alliant. And I mean, we're four or five companies in this group talking to you today that we've kind of got more of a let's engage kind of perspective, but there's plenty of companies that don't really have that engaged perspective. They'd rather fight things out at every level. So yeah, I do think if things stay the way they are, you will see some, some protests, you know, go to court, federal court to see what they can do to change this. What's going on now really isn't a great decision for the taxpayer. Doug Sickler is chief growth officer for Pyramid Systems. Greg Gershman is the CEO and co-founder of AdHoc. Kevin Cooley is CEO of Resource Management Concepts. All speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's reporter's notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how governments can better prepare for supply chain disruptions. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Supply chain interruptions and slowdowns linger as an effect of the pandemic. They make purchasing and acquisition difficult for the private sector and government alike. Recently, thinkers from the IBM Center for the Business of Government, National Academy of Public Administration, and the Chamber of Commerce put their heads together to come up with ways governments can become more resilient on the supply chain front. Joining me with the details from the IBM Center, Dan Chenock. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And from North Carolina State, Robert Hanfield. Dr. Hanfield, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be here. And let's begin with what your sense is of what I said at the beginning. Is this still lingering with us? I can tell you from personal experience, there are definitely still consumer-rated supply chain interruptions. What about the industrial level and the uh, governmental level? Let me start and then Rob can add. The premise of the discussion was really that the lingering effects of supply chain constraints you know, remain to some extent, but there are on the horizon new and evolving threats to the supply chain. And those both include threats from things like another you know, healthcare crisis, 
but also threats to how the chains operate from evolving technologies and that can make things go faster, but can also introduce risks from cybersecurity, et cetera. So to your question, generally, the premise that the participants discussed and that Rob, as our expert author, wrote about were kind of broad spectrum and do apply across years. It wasn't just an effect of the pandemic, but Rob, go ahead and take over. Yeah, I would say uh, the effect of the pandemic has a very, very long lasting hangover. Unfortunately, we are still seeing traces of many of the disruptions that occurred during COVID that have continued to occur. And those are in the healthcare sector, even in the industrial goods sector, we're seeing shortages of different kinds of resins and steel and lumber in some cases. And you get these spot shortages. And, and unfortunately, you don't really know where they're going to come from or, or how they'll materialize. And there's, of course, a lot of other factors as well, climate change events, geopolitical events, et cetera. And people are kind of left in a state of continuous anxiety. You know, we were talking about purchasing. People who buy things are almost always worried about something going wrong. And that seems to be kind of the state we're in these days. Yeah, I think in some ways, I mean, the first supply chain disruption that the modern day American industry felt was after the Arab oil embargo back in whenever that was in the middle 1970s. And so that's when I think we learned this thing could happen. But in the discussions that you all convened, uh, you came up with the concept of creating a shared and getting to government now here, creating a shared service approach to build supply chain resiliency. Shared service you hear in other contexts in the government arena. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. So the concept is that there are many players in many different supply chains, healthcare, food production, delivery of materials for building, uh, et cetera. The technologies and approaches and analytics approaches can be common across different kinds of supply chains. So the, the concept we had is rather than set up lots of different um, centers of excellence to do design, development, technology process, that there were pockets of excellence that could be captured in a center that would be operated, let's say, by a center of government agency like GSA, but we didn't recommend that specifically, to provide to the agencies the ability to you know, have these kinds of technology capabilities and process capabilities in place so that they didn't have to reinvent it on their own. Yeah, because basically right now every department and every independent agency to some degree does its own procurement, and there's often not a lot of collaboration. I would say, uh, you know, people like to say, well, the government is the biggest buyer in the world. It is, except that it's not really leveraging the collaborative strength of all these different agencies that are essentially siloed and, and doing everything independently. And the idea of a shared service would be one that does really three things. The first is providing access to data on what are some of the potential risks of disruption out there. And you can't manage what you can't see. So we need some kind of monitoring service to be able to provide warning of, hey, there's something bad going on in Chile or in South America that could impact our supply chains. We also need to have market intelligence. You know, I wrote a book in 2006 called Supply Market Intelligence. And I've studied the intelligence services, and it's exactly the same processes. We need to be able to do what-if analysis, do war gaming, and understand how we can mitigate these potential threats. And then we need that expertise. We need people who know what to do with this information. 
one of the insights was that people working in places like the National Stockpile, they did not have an acquisition background. They didn't even know how to source stuff. So we need to have the right people with the right skills in this kind of a shared service environment. We're speaking with Dr. Robert Hanfield. He's a professor in the Poole College of Management at North Carolina State University and with Dan Chenock, the executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. And then your step two I really liked was diagnose the acquisition ecosystem. And by that, you didn't mean necessarily the federal acquisition system. There's a million people diagnosing that. There's about five commissions at work right now on different parts of it. You meant something else entirely, correct, Dan? Yes. So the idea is that there are risks at multiple stages of the ecosystem, and that's well before a formal procurement is done. And and it's after a procurement is awarded in terms of execution and delivery of equipment. And regardless of the delivery mechanism, whether it's a shared service or some other type of governance approach, having the ability to kind of look end to end at opportunities and risks and basically link with suppliers, many of whom are not in the government, some of whom have formal contract relationships and some of whom don't, and some of whom are buyers or users of the government service once it's uh, acquired and delivered. So sort of taking that end-to-end approach is something that we found was critically important to identify the risks at each stage, because if one thing goes wrong, especially upstream, it has a lot of implications for the downstream delivery at the supply chain. Yeah, and this is not just in the military domain, although that comes to mind initially because what they buy is so complex and non-commercial versus what, for the most part, the rest of the government buys are the same commodities that everybody else buys. And the other thing I'll say, Tom, which is really important is, you know, the government does a lot of acquisition and the Department of Defense does a lot as well, but they rely on their vendor primes. And they're assuming that these primes and these what they call tier one suppliers do have visibility and are monitoring what's happening upstream. Well, that's a huge assumption that is usually incorrect. Usually they have no idea, you know, where their stuff is coming from beyond, you know, their immediate suppliers. And very often what we found is that these disruptions occur way upstream in what we call a tier three or tier four or even a tier five supplier. And it may be uh, raw material. It may be a supplier going out of business. It may be a, uh, like during COVID, we saw the Uh, zero COVID disruptions that were shutting down manufacturing sites in China. So there's any number of different events that can cause these disruptions. And usually we don't know about it until it's too late, till stuff, you know, stops showing up at our loading dock. And we're like, "Uh uh-oh, what happened? (laughs) Well, it's too late. We need to be more proactive about that. Yeah, it used to be the automobile industry at one time up until, I don't know, maybe the 80s were masters at supply chain. And they even got into the books of their suppliers and their suppliers' plans in such a deep way that it made the government look like pikers, you know, when doing accounting rules. That's not the case anymore. It doesn't seem to be with what you look at the performance of that industry. Well, you know, the automotive industry in particular, I and I interviewed the head of General Motors uh, Supply Chain Resilience Group, and they are making big investments in supply chain resiliency. And one of the things they're doing is they are mapping out these multi-tier supply chains. Uh, they're figuring out who is their tier two supplier for this component, who is their tier three. And I asked him, well, how are you getting this information? Are you using, you know, AI or technology? He goes, no, we simply ask them. Right. <laughs> you know? How about that? How about that? Right. And and so we have to be able to leverage and, and, and collaborate with our suppliers 
And I don't think technology solutions are going to give us the right answers here. Yeah, ask the white paint supplier, where do you get your titanium dioxide? And so we'll know you're going to be able to make us white paint. And one other thing I wanted to ask about, because there's a lot of good points in your report here, but the idea of design thinking to develop key supply chain components. Design thinking. Tell us more about that one. So that's a process of bringing together different stakeholders Oftentimes, when you think about sort of supply chain communication, you're talking about each tier, what sort of bilaterally, if you will. So the idea is, let's bring together all the different players in a particular supply chain, or many of them, to kind of map out the process, see where the bottlenecks might be occurring, identify ways that they can sort of do the change management work to make the process smoother, and do that before, as Rob said, you sort of turn to the technology solution. The design thinking can then help with designing the requirements for the technology. But this is a discipline that hasn't really been used a lot in this part of the government and could be very helpful. All right. And briefly, you had these discussions of these great thinkers from the different organizations. You met in two cities to have these discussions. Where are you sending this report around? Who should read this? So there's a lot of interest in the report already. We have uh, interest from Capitol Hill. From uh, There's been a, a recent piece of legislation introduced on supply chain efficiency for uh, a future crisis. And so we're in discussions there. We've been, we're in discussions with GSA uh, around, around this and, and a lot of the agencies who participated in, in the report. And you can see the names of the agency participants in the, in the appendix um, have been interested in following up. And I know Rob's been talking to folks in, in his uh, neck of the woods as well. Yeah, I've I've talked to um, a couple of different senators' offices, and, you know, they've got real interest, especially when it comes to, you know, drug supply. And there's continues to be, you know, shortages of common generic drugs, even, you know, uh, Adderall and uh, in some cases statins. And uh, there's greater concern about, hey, where's this stuff coming from? And it turns out most of the, you know, active pharmaceutical ingredients are coming from China or India. And so there's there's movement on Capitol Hill to start building domestic capabilities in some of these high impact areas that impact our health. Mr. Modi, open up this supply chain. Robert Hanfield is a professor in the Poole College of Management at North Carolina State University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Dan Chanock is the executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Dan, always good to have you on. Great to see you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this defense official put allied suppliers to Ukraine on speed dial. But first, how the Defense Department can improve surge capacity in the federal supply chain. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. In war, the only thing worse than getting there late is running out of ammunition. No one has infinite stockpiles, and the drawdown in support of Ukraine has shown the need to boost the surge capacity of the defense industrial base. Now the George Mason University Center for Government Contracting has offered a list of ways to deal with that capacity deficit. The center's executive director, Jerry McGinn, joins me in studio with more. Jerry, good to have you back. Great to be here, Tom. And Ukraine really has shown what? That we just can't restock fast enough that if the United States was in a war, 
we could run out of ammo right. and, and, and systems. Yes, I mean, it's shown that we have a real capacity problem. Beyond just Ukraine, you know, there's been a lot of unclassified war games and you know, looking at uh, Taiwan scenarios and the like. And we run out of fighter jets in two weeks, and you know, missiles in a weekend. It's just you know, so we have a real capacity challenge. Your report, which is very detailed, I guess you did it originally for the Navy, correct? We did it as part of the the Navy Postgraduate School Acquisition Research Symposium, their conference, yes. And and we looked at um, what we called a build-allied approach for building capacity. That is, other nations that are allied with us take part in the industrial base and the industrial work to keep everybody stockpiled. That's correct. Essentially, one of the things that COVID has shown and support of the Ukraine has shown is that we have kind of the same industrial base in a lot of ways. I mean, we already have kind of foreign companies that provide systems or subsystems to the U.S., and that's been going on for decades. But we have many of the same suppliers. So how do we kind of, if, if we more intentionally focus on spurring those kind of collaborations, we get a larger industrial base for the U.S. and for our partners. Partners and allies. So that's how we build capacity is in, in, in spurring this further. Because when you go to the big shows, Sea Air Space or the Army show in Washington every year, what's always interesting on the show floor itself is how many foreign companies are there. Yeah. And who knew they also make missiles and helicopters and all of these things? Should it be that these maybe the, the number of models of things, the selection of missiles gets reduced and more people make the same thing for everybody? And therefore, that would be a surge in capacity. That is one approach, you know, where you essentially build less unique systems and, and kind of more scale. Some people have thought about that, but, but that would be kind of truly revolutionary. We're not there yet, I think. And it would also stifle innovation if some yep. Belgian or Australian contractor comes up with a better way to, I don't know, better fuse or a better right. guidance system, why would you not want to have that on U.S. stuff? Right, exactly. I mean, so so there's, you know, there's some that argue that in some ways we build too exquisite systems. Our systems are too exquisite, and maybe we should build systems that are kind of just good enough. And there's a place for that, but domestically we're always going to build the, the best possible system for our warfighters. Well, also there's the idea of exquisite systems means maybe fewer people. Yeah. And so you can throw a lot of people at something with inferior systems, but then you become like Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's kind of not our gestalt here in no, the United no, States. It is not. And you focus in this report, you use a case history of the Javelin missiles – and the HIMARS launching system. What is the story with those? Yeah, we looked at a series of case studies to look at, you know, because we've done this kind of international collaboration before, and, and, and we do it now, like F-35, even MRAP, and we look at, you know, what are the lessons from that so we can actually spur more collaboration in, for programs like HIMARS and the like. And so we, you know, we kind of come with some findings and recommendations that uh, – are focused on really building on the really positive environment that is today because there's a lot of energy behind industrial collaboration. If you look at the national defense strategy in the U.S., it mentions allies and partners 32 times, okay? But what does that mean? And the, But you see pragmatically in the National Defense Authorization Act, there's a number of provisions to help spur kind of working with allies and partners, really the Brits and the Australians and so on. That's a very positive sign. We're speaking with Jerry McGinn. He is the executive director of the George Mason University Center for Government Contracting. In the report, again, you cite several mechanisms that have been longstanding that support this idea of build allied. The Reciprocal Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy Memoranda of Understanding. There's mm-hmm. a long set of letters for that. 
the security of supply arrangements and several others. Is it just a matter of scaling those up, do you think? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a couple things. Yeah, so the RDP MOUs, as you mentioned, some of these I call enablers have been longstanding, but they're not really well known. Now, the fact that, you know, when um, the U.S. and another country signs an RDP MOU, that enables our companies, our U.S.-based companies, you know, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, to, to, to sell into those markets. But it also enables companies based in those countries, headquartered in those companies, to be exempt from Buy America legislation and so on. But that's not really well known down at the program executive offices across the country or in the services or in Congress. There's much more that can be done to create more collaboration for companies to support the U.S. warfighter through using these vehicles. And then there's some like the National Technology Industrial Base and the Australia-UK-US Agreement, AUKUS. These ones are newer, and they could really use ways to get real hooks into real collaboration. And, and that's where we need like export control laws passed and the like. And there is the question of usage, I guess, or how much you need to build at a given time. Yep. So say in peacetime, and you need javelins to train with and javelins to recycle. I guess they get old if you don't use them and this kind of thing. That's very different. Restocking with a couple of suppliers seems relatively simple because it's predictable. Mm-hmm. In a actual hot situation of war and suddenly you're launching thousands of these things, that's when that base has to be there. And that's hard on companies if they have no demand queues and suddenly the nation is at war, or God forbid, all of a sudden, hey, we need 10,000 a week of these things. Right. That's really the crux of the matter, it seems like. It, it is. I mean, you know, and there's a recognition um, – in government and in industry that we're not building enough now, but sort of what is the steady state of the future? And it's, you know, it's really hard to find that balance because companies can build new factories uh, if the government pays them to do it. But but in three years, what if there's no demand? So then they have to shutter it. So it's just like finding that right balance of building capacity or building latent capacity through contract cleanse and the like is where the government's going towards. You know, that's why they've set up this multi-year procurement to focus on uh, a smoother demand signal for munitions. These kind of things things are in work, but building capacity is really important. And that's where we have to recognize, and that's what the focus of the report is on, that it doesn't have to be just U.S. kind of companies. It could also be, like in the case of the Amram missile, there's a Norwegian company that is an alternate provider of the the rocket motor engine. So there you have a latent capacity. You can grow Amram production like that. Is there a difference, which gets to my next question, is there a difference between the ordinance, if you will, and the system that launches the ordinance. If you look at like a Patriot missile or one of these HIMAR things, they look like gigantic wine crates with all the tubes and all the missiles come out of there. That's used over and over and over again. It's the missiles, the consumable. If you lose one of those launch systems or lose a series of those, some of them are as big as a giant truck. Right. And that's not something that anybody can just gear up and build. It probably takes a year to build one in the first place. Right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, those longer lead items, it's always kind of a challenge of getting that kind of the, that the, how much is an, enough challenge. But right now we're clearly not producing enough and, and we don't have enough on stockpiles. So who should read your report? Acquisition people, defense planners, everybody, all of the above? The broad government contracting community. I want those that on Capitol Hill that are interested in it's like, how do we build capacity? And what role do allies and partners play? Those in the department um, and in uh, the State Department as well, you know, th- you know, grappling with these issues. And a lot of this, a lot of the report is to reinforce things that are already happening. But what I argue is that we, we need to increase the scope and the scale. We need to have an attitude a bit like uh, former Secretary uh, Bob Gates had on the MRAP, where it's really kind of 
he really simplified, and this is one of the case studies in the report, he simplified the acquisition process, reduced the requirements, used existing foreign designs, and said, you know, and built multiple of them. I want multiple versions in the field in 10 months. And so what happened? They produced a whole mess of them, lots of different providers, it strengthened the industrial base. And it was expensive, right? But So you can't do it everywhere. But we have to have that kind of mindset in how we think about developing and fielding systems, given the threat that we have today. Any other good case histories? Well, I think the F-35 is a bad name, but I think it's actually a really interesting story because that is actually produced. Uh, you know, the parts for the F-35 come from around the world and around the US, United States. And there's actually three facilities where they have what they call the final assembly and checkout. The main one's in Fort Worth, Texas, but there's one in Italy and there's one in Japan. And so those F-35s roll off the roll of the assembly line in three different countries. And more than, more importantly for um, sustainment, the, but those foreign facilities are also used for sustainment and repair. So therefore, you've got a place where, say we have a, a, a contingency in the Asia-Pacific theater. Those, those, those vehicles can be repaired. Um, aircraft can be repaired there or can be pr- the ramped up production there. A latter-day zero. <laughs> Jerry McGinn is director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. It's always great to have you in. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive hear the federal drive on demand subscribe wherever you get your podcasts still to come this defense official has allied suppliers to ukraine on speed dial it's the federal drive with tom temen here on federal news radio part of the federal news network Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. For nearly 18 months, the United States and its allies have shored up Ukraine with advanced weapons and ammunition. Early on, a policy office deep in the Pentagon coordinated efforts to enlist more than 50 countries to gather up not only weapons, but also medical supplies, ambulances and clothing. Laura Cooper is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, or RUE. For her work in the Ukraine situation, she's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, and she joins me now. Ms. Cooper, good to have you with us. Thanks. Happy to be here. And this was called the RUE before the Russian-Ukraine situation, correct, this office? Yes, absolutely. This office has existed for years and years working on Russia, working on building partnerships with Ukraine and a number of other countries of Eurasia. All right. And when the invasion happened and it became the policy of Congress and of the administration to help Ukraine with various supplies, what did you do? How did you get started and how did it fall to your office of all places to coordinate all of this? Well, it's important to note that I have a team that includes people who have long been working to support Ukraine in building its armed forces so that it could defend itself against Russian aggression. Russia invaded the first time in 2014, and so we have been assisting the Ukrainians ever since. But the scale and scope of the challenge that was presented by Russia's brutal and unprovoked invasion on February 24th of 2022 really presented an unprecedented challenge. 
while before the large-scale invasion, we had been supporting Ukraine with roughly $300 million a year in security assistance, equipment, and training. Suddenly, we were supporting Ukraine with billions of dollars of assistance, and we had to keep ahead of the battlefield to provide Ukraine with what it needed, when it needed it, and anticipate what would be most helpful in pushing back against Russian aggression. So we stood up an entirely new system for supporting decisions on security assistance. And Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defense, took a day-to-day oversight role in leading not just the United States effort, but really in leading an international effort to support Ukraine. So we developed an in-house effort to develop these packages very rapidly, involving hundreds of people across the department in the decision-making process, but on a very rapid basis. And then we developed an international effort called the Ukraine Defense Contact Group that brings together 50 defense ministers every single month to consider what are Ukraine's most urgent needs and then to coordinate assistance. Yeah, so it sounds like you have got people around the world almost on speed dial to discuss these things. We do indeed, whether it's our allies in Australia or our many NATO allies in Europe. We are in regular contact with countries all around the world, and we're obviously in regular contact with the Ukrainians. So we're talking to the Ukrainians every day, and we're inviting the Ukrainians to these Ukraine Defense Contact Group meetings to explain what they need and to talk about the battlefield situation and be able to enlist the support of all these countries. So we share these battlefield requirements with countries around the world, and then we ensure that there aren't gaps in what Ukraine needs so that the U.S. and all of our allies and partners can help them down to the minute. And how do you thread the needle between what Congress and the administration may have authorized? Just to make an extreme example, if Ukraine said, well, we'd like to have a squadron of F-35s. Well, nobody said they could have that, and that's not being paid for and so on. Yet they do have specific requirements of military gear. How does it work to decide what it is they specifically get, given what Congress authorizes and what the administration agrees to? With every assistance package, with every decision, we are looking at first and foremost, what does Ukraine need right now? And can we get it to them and enable them to use it very quickly? In some cases, there are equipment items that we know they need, we know they can make use of, but they don't have the training. So we embark on training programs to enable them to make best use of this assistance. We did this, for example, with the M777 artillery system, the howitzers that we provided. We recognized in the spring of 2022 that the battlefield was changing and it was evolving from something that required a lot of anti-tank weapons to something that required a lot of artillery systems. So we got out ahead of it, we identified that requirement, and we set up a training program for the Ukrainians. We did the same thing with the HIMARS system, which has been so helpful in being able to provide longer-range targeting of Russian positions. But you can't do that with everything. You know, some systems require a lot of time to train on because they're very sophisticated. That's certainly true of a lot of aircraft. 
and also you have to consider availability. You know, we have been drawing down a lot of equipment through this presidential drawdown authority, so taking it right from U.S. stocks or asking allies and partners to take right from their stocks. And you can certainly do that with some items, but you get to a point where you run out of equipment, and we certainly have to maintain supplies for our own forces for any contingencies that might emerge that would require them to have this capability. So then you get into procurement, and we do have a really vigorous procurement system. It's under the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, where we go out and purchase or encourage you know, defense industry to build equipment for Ukraine. But that's a longer timeline. And so we always have to balance these questions of capability requirements and then, you know, the timeliness of what we can provide. We're speaking with Laura Cooper. She's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. And give us a sense of what else besides some of these sophisticated weapons systems that is going there. Your citation mentioned blankets and winter clothing and this kind of thing also, besides weapons and ordnance. Well, I think, you know, starting with the winter clothing item, I think this was one where certainly the U.S. did provide some military-grade winter clothing. You can imagine it is very cold on the battlefield in the middle of winter in Ukraine, and you want the Ukrainian armed forces to be outfitted with kit that protects them and enables them to continue to fight. But it actually was the Allies that provided some of the most impressive winter clothing and, you know, gear that helped the Ukrainians through the winter. We had several of our, uh, you know, our Canadian allies and our Nordic allies that, as you can imagine, have pretty exceptional winter gear and really dug deep into their stocks to make sure that the Ukrainians had what they needed. Another really important item that we have provided from the United States and other countries as well are ambulances. And that includes armored ambulances so that injured Ukrainian forces can be taken right from the battlefield to medical care, saving lives. And so I'm really proud of the ambulances and armored ambulances that we and others have been able to provide, just as an example. And what's it like in the office? I mean, you're involved day by day in a kinetic and dynamic situation, both over there and, frankly, over here with what people are debating and so forth, what Congress is thinking about, what the administration is talking about. So how do you maintain that level of pace? What's it like day to day? Well, I will say the pace is not easy. It is brisk. Sometimes I would say grueling. Start very, very early. We provide the secretary with his 6.30 a.m. morning report every day. And you do have people here uh, rather late as well. But I think the thing to emphasize is just how motivated and dedicated and really talented this crew is. You know, I am a longtime Pentagon civil servant. I actually was in the Pentagon on 9-11. So I have seen over my years of service amazing dedication and motivation. But I will tell you, I have never seen anything like this. Every day people come into the office and whether they're working on, you know, a spreadsheet that is delineating all of the costs of various equipment items for the next package, or they're on the phone early in the morning with allies in Europe, or, you know, late in the evening with allies in the Indo-Pacific, they are motivated because they know this is historic. And what they are doing is going to have a lasting impact 
on international security, that if we don't help Ukraine to succeed, if we don't stand up to this egregious act of aggression and violence and brutality by Russia, then we will be living in a very dark world. And so, you know, my team is very motivated and very determined. Laura Cooper is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says it's ahead of schedule on its goal of more visibility into vulnerabilities on federal networks. CISA also expects more agencies to adopt its shared cyber services in the coming months. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more. And what is CISA exactly saying here with respect to progress on visibility, Justin? Yes, CISA reports that 55% of federal agencies now automatically report into its Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation System, or CDM. That's up from 45% at the end of the first quarter of this fiscal 2023 And that beats the goal for the end of this year of at least half of all agencies reporting into automatically reporting into CDM. This all came out in CISA's latest uh, update on its agency priority goal of strengthening federal cybersecurity. CDM is central to CISA's role in overseeing federal cybersecurity defenses. Agency CDM dashboards feed up into a federal dashboard that kind of shows CISA and the White House across-the-board progress on, you know, patching hardware and software and potential vulnerabilities on networks. So CISA says it's performing well against this measure, and both quarter one and quarter two results have been, quote, much higher than anticipated. Yeah, so that means they are hoping the entire government will get on there. And does that look like this rate will continue? Well, in a word, no. CISA also said in the same update they expect more stabilized progress through the remainder of fiscal 2023 on kind of this automated CDM reporting. They say factors include agency resourcing, prioritization, and leadership changes. All of those will create challenges for achieving what it calls comprehensive CDM coverage. And they actually put a number on it. CISA expects that it will be able to reach as high as about 85% of agencies doing this automatic reporting into CDM, but, quote, it may never approach 100%. So they've gotten pretty far so far, but they expect things to level off a little bit here as some agencies run into some of those resourcing challenges. Cybersecurity costs money at the end of the day, so there, there still could be issues there. And, of course, it's great to be on continuous diagnostics and mitigation, but what about the results? I mean, Is this program showing that dangerous vulnerabilities can actually be headed off or found before they can do any damage? There is an interesting update on that at the June 22nd Cybersecurity Advisory Committee meeting from CISA Executive Assistant Director Eric Goldstein. The audio from that meeting was not great, so I won't play it on your program here. But essentially, Goldstein pointed to the recent vulnerabilities in the recent MoveIt file transfer system uh, ransomware attack, where this file transfer system had these zero-day vulnerabilities that were used to basically steal data from organizations across across the country, including some uh, federal agencies. But CISA officials have said the campaign did not result in any significant impacts to federal data or systems. 
And during that meeting I mentioned, Goldstein said, had this happened a couple of years ago, CISA probably would have been accepting spreadsheets from agencies on how they were doing and using this application and where it was and whether it was patched. Now they can log into the CDM dashboard and actually look at all the agencies in there to see where the application is, what version status it is, and whether or not it is patched. So that's one anecdote that CISA has shared to kind of show success with CDM so far. Yeah, that idea of discovering or knowing about a hole or a vulnerability that pops up is one thing. And as you point out, the patching, the mitigation part, that's something else. And agencies have often been behind the eight ball when it comes to having the latest patches. And so what does CISA say is the status now? Are agencies keeping on top of these these patch needs? Yeah, at that same advisory committee meeting, CISA's uh, Eric Goldstein said that agencies have made a lot of strides since the agency reached released binding operational directive on uh, known exploited vulnerabilities in late 2021. That directive essentially establishes a catalog of the most dangerous cyber vulnerabilities and requires agencies to patch them within specified timeframes. And Goldstein says they've now driven mitigation of millions of vulnerable instances of technology since that directive was put in place. At the same time, as you point out, there are still some challenges uh, in certain areas. For example, the Environmental Protection Agency's Inspector General recently released a report where it found more than 20,000 critical vulnerabilities on systems used by the EPA's Office of Air and Radiation. The EPA office said many of those monitoring systems that it uses are really old and they're not updated by vendors who made them. Applying patches could break them or shut them down temporarily, but it says it's working to mitigate things where it can. That's kind of a classic example of where agencies are still using legacy systems and patching may not be as simple or as easy as it seems. And what else about CISA? Where else are they seeing progress? What do they report otherwise? Yeah, the other interesting thing in its latest quarterly update is shared services adoption is up. Uh, CISA offers a number of shared cybersecurity services like mobile application vetting as agencies use more iPhone and and smartphone applications. They need to make sure they're secure. They offer a suite of shared cybersecurity services in general, like logging and things like that. And then there's the vulnerability disclosure policy platform. CISA saw uh, 120 distinct adoptions of those shared services across agencies by the end of quarter two. And CISA expects to see even more adoption in the coming two quarters to meet its annual target of 190 total adoptions across its shared services portfolio. So that's kind of a marker of how CISA, another marker of how CISA is kind of offering these shared cybersecurity resources across the federal civilian uh, agency networks. And some of the big agencies and departments use those shared services, not just all the small fry and the small independent agencies, correct? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some of these uh, services are offered, uh, they're all free, and and they're they're kind of offered on this basis that, you know, some of the smaller agencies could probably use some free services with their limited budgets. But then there's things like secure cloud business applications uh, that CISA is just rolling out this year, where all agencies use things like Microsoft, Azure, even the big ones, and they have to follow these uh, shared standards. So you're seeing some of the bigger agencies adopt that SCUBA uh, secure cloud business application service as well. All right. A deep dive on SCUBA, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. You're welcome, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 